0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> We're almost there anyway. It's uh, just an awesome service so far, isn't it? Um, so awesome to see all the different giftings and abilities God has given. Our church, Um, I was telling Pastor Peter actually when we were previewing that video with the kids, uh, when it got to those theological answers, they were were answering actually so well that I was thinking like they must have heard the Advent sermons because they were almost exactly what we've been teaching through the Advent series. And so it's uh, pretty remarkable how well the kids were answering. Um, I'm wearing Nikes with this outfit because I forgot to wear them when uh, our brother Will was saying his goodbye. And so I told him I'd wear for the very next time I preach. Didn't realize that was going to be Christmas service. <laughs> and so to be true to my word, I still wore them. But I'm feeling uncomfortably similar to Mr. Rogers, I realize, <laughs> wearing sneakers and a sweater. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, they're actually really incredibly comfortable shoes. Um, why don't we just begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into God's word. Uh, as we turn our hearts to to Scripture. God, we are so filled with a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, a sense of thankfulness uh, as we celebrate this Christmas holiday. Each year, we are reminded afresh how great your love is for us. And so we pray that through the work of your Spirit, you would pour your love into us so that we would not just know it through these songs, through the presentations, but we would know it in our spirits, in our soul, because you are with us and you are present in us. And so we just give you this time in Jesus' name. I don't know if you've done your shopping yet. If not, then you're a pretty bad person, (laughs) okay? It's uh, kind of just a couple more days here. I don't know if some of you may be heading to the mall after the service to do your kind of last-minute gifts that are still remaining on your list. Uh, My children and my wife always tell me that I am one of the hardest people to shop for. They say they never know what to get me. Because it never seems like I, I need anything. And so I, what I have always told my family is, don't buy me something that I need, okay? Don't buy me something practical. Buy me something fun and frivolous, <laughs> yeah? Um, and so they've been kind of honoring that uh, lately. Uh, Max Lucado, author and pastor, uh, has this funny letter that he's written on behalf of all husbands, Uh, to their wives. And so before we get into it, I thought for a little bit more of a lighthearted look, it says this. Dear ladies, we know you mean well. We know that you think you know best, but enough is enough. We have suffered in silence for too long. Having shared our pain with one another, we husbands hereby step out of the shadows and open our hearts. This year, as you shop for our Christmas gifts, please don't buy us what we need. We know we need to smell better and look nicer. (laughs) We know you like us in warm pajamas and new underwear, but we do not know what to say when we open these gifts. How can you fake enthusiasm over house slippers? How can you look happy holding a nose hair trimmer? We've lied long enough. For the sake of integrity on Christmas morning, we offer this guidance. As you look at any potential gift, ask yourself these questions. Can he play with it? Does it swing, bounce, shuffle, cast, or roll? Can you find a trigger, grip, ripcord, or stick shift? Does it have a big screen and a remote control? If it does, buy it. Doesn't matter that he already has one. This is no time to be practical. (laughs) When considering an item of men's apparel, we offer these two questions. Does it make him look cute? Does it make him look like a hunk? If the clothing makes him look cute, drop it immediately. If it makes him look like a hunk, buy two. In closing, we extend this offer. If you will buy us what we want, we will do the same for you. Without revealing any details, we will tell you this. A large vacuum cleaner company has offered us a group discount, and you thought we were insensitive. No need to thank us, your husbands, okay? So. Um, I think, you know, joking aside, Christmas can be actually a rather confusing time of year. Because on the one hand, it is, uh, if you could advance the slide. Okay, yeah. Uh, On the one hand, it celebrates something rather momentous. We celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that there is this cultural Christmas that is sort of almost seamlessly woven into the Christian holiday so that after a while it becomes confusing which one is which, isn't it? The cultural Christmas celebration is about decorating Christmas trees and holiday music in the malls and hot chocolate around a warm fireplace. It's about holiday parties with friends and holiday dinners with family and opening presents on Christmas morning. And the message from all of that cultural Christmas is just shouts loud and clear to us. It is, you should be happy this time of year. But I think it presses the question, what exactly is it that we're supposed to be happy about? What is there to be so happy about? Well, the cultural Christmas would answer it like this. Why should you be happy? Well, it's the most wonderful time of the year with the kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you to be of good cheer, it's the most wonderful time of the year. In other words, be happy because you should be happy, right? Um, And so not surprisingly, the holiday season is a time when many people actually struggle with feelings of emptiness, loneliness, loss, and sadness. It's interesting, according to one study... That was done recently. There are more heart attacks on Christmas Eve than any other day in the year. Isn't that kind of a sad statistic? And it's not any moment on Christmas Eve, it's exactly located to exactly 10 p.m. Christmas Eve, is when more heart attacks happen than on any other day of the year. And it's not subtle, it's 40% more, okay? It's crazy. And so as you look at that, you wonder, what is going on there? You know, it's supposed to be such a wonderful time of celebration, and yet why is it that it often stirs so much sadness and depression in people? I would also say this. It's not just the cultural Christmas, but even the Bible story that has been sort of transformed by the cultural Christmas, And so what we get is even in the story that we find in the Bible, it becomes this sanitized feel-good story of a baby in a manger being held by a glowing Mary who never is portrayed as a terrified teenager who just gave birth in a barn, okay? And there's wise men and there are Shepherds, and there's always little baby animals that seem to know that the Savior is born because they all are looking at the baby like they are worshiping, right? And what I worry about this portrayal, this sort of whitewashed hallmark version of Christmas, is that it seems to try to accomplish the same thing as the cultural Christmas, which is just to stir up these vague, warm, fuzzy feelings in our heart of a baby in a manger wise men, and shepherds. And it doesn't seem to acknowledge the actual confusion and scandal and struggle that characterized the first Christmas 2,000 years ago. As I mentioned in the first Advent message about a month ago, we can lose sight of the fact that God sent his son to become a person and walk among us so that that child could grow up and actually die for our sins. It's interesting that an angel came to Joseph because Mary became pregnant through the Holy Spirit while they were betrothed or basically engaged, and Joseph, being an honorable man, didn't know what to do for her, and so his thought was to just quietly divorce her and let her go somewhere secretly and have the baby. And in that night, an angel would come to Joseph And say to him, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That name, Jesus, in the Hebrew is Yeshua, which means God saves. And so that's why his name is Jesus, because he would become a person like us so that he could die. For our sins, God became flesh so that that flesh could be pierced for our sins. In other words, what the Bible tells us is that he took his, that guilt of our sins on himself so that we could have peace with God. And last week, Pastor Peter shared about how one of the other reasons why God became a man in the person of Jesus, was so that he could experience everything that we go through in life. All of the temptations, all of the struggles, all of the heartaches that we experience, he would experience himself so that he could walk in our shoes and he could empathize with us in our weakness, in our heartache. As crazy as that is, it says that God became one of us so that he could know our struggle personally. And what's so amazing about this story is that even before the world was created, God decided to do this. This wasn't some last-minute Hail Mary scramble to try to fix a broken situation. But what it says is even before God created us, he knew that this is what he would do to save us. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 to 20 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, and then this is what Peter says, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Jesus, the Lamb, chosen to atone for our sins before this world was created. But here is the thing as we've been unpacking through this whole Advent season is this. The question that I don't think we've really adequately answered is this. Why did God do this? Why did he do all of this? Is it because it was just the right thing to do, and because God is God, he cannot help but do the right thing? Well, that might be part of the answer. Is it because God was cornered into this as if he had no other choice? Well, that is not really the answer. But what we could say is this. The Bible tells us that it was love that drove God to send his son to save us from our sins. In other words, it was not a sense of duty or a sense of moral obligation, or a lack of other options. It was God's love that caused him to send his son. John chapter 3, verse 16, probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, love was the motive behind everything that God does on our behalf. And if we don't understand this about God, we don't understand anything about God because everything God does is as a result of his love. And I want to say this. As wonderful as a message as that ought to be, I want to acknowledge that that isn't necessarily received by many of us as a very heartwarming thought. And I say that because I think the truth is for many of us, we have had a very complicated history with love. Because love as a concept, as an idea, as a virtue, doesn't necessarily conjure for for many of us really warm feelings inside. I think the truth is this, that many of us have struggled with love in much of our life. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Love doesn't seem like a solid enough foundation on which to rest our deepest hopes. Some of you have had parents that claim to have loved you. And yet, those very parents may be the source of many of the wounds that you bear in your life. Is that love? Maybe you've had somebody tell you that they love you, only to eventually abandon you and break your heart. I know this for a fact that some of you are struggling desperately to find love in your marriages. And despite all of your heroic efforts to try to keep this marriage going, it just feels like the two of you are drifting apart. That's love in a broken world, isn't it? And so this idea that everything that God does is because of love doesn't necessarily strike us as such a promising message. There's got to be more than love because love fails. Love isn't enough in a broken world. I think most of you are familiar with uh, Jane Fonda. Uh, She is a Hollywood actress, an activist, a uh, if you're old enough to remember, a fitness guru (laughs) who made this now infamous workout tape. Jane Fonda struggled to find love her entire life. And it all began with her father, Henry Fonda, who whose love she tried so desperately to earn all of her life, ever since she was a young girl, but never could. And I want to show you right now uh, just a brief clip that's taken from a documentary on her life, which sort of highlights... Jane Fonda's search for love from her father. And I've spliced a couple different scenes together in this documentary, and that's why it may feel a little bit disjointed at times. But let's just go ahead and take a look at it, and then we'll go on.
1: He was the face of the America that
0: people wanted
1: to believe in. I was Henry Fonda's daughter, which, of course, meant that I was polite I was nice... <laughs> I was the girl next door. All the things that I didn't feel I was. I didn't like my body, I didn't like myself, I, I felt shy. We looked like the American dream. Rich, beautiful, close. But a lot of it was simply myth. This is the summer when I was 11. It was staged for some magazine, I don't remember which one. And this is my brother Peter and my mother. She had been in and out of institutions by that time, and when I look at her face, I can see the anxiety and the stress. and It makes me very, very sad. I didn't know why, but I had an aversion to her. My team is the winning team. My team is the man, my dad. And you can tell he is not present at all. He was having an affair with a far younger woman. Family picnic. To me, that is a very sad picture. It says it all. I was alone a lot growing up, I spent all my time roaming the hills. I wanted to be Tonto. In those days, when you really became somebody, it meant that you were independent, you didn't need anybody. But then I'd look into the windows of houses where people were sitting at the table. And I remember it would bring up a feeling of longing in me. And I figured, whatever it is that creates that thing that I'm looking at, that warm glow of light, people laughing and talking, that will never be mine. I had always wanted to do a movie with my dad and this play seemed like a perfect thing. She bought on and Pon for them. She produced it. She made it for him to have a deeper shared experience with him before they couldn't anymore. It was about the reconciliation of a hard dad and a emotional daughter. It was more than a script. It was an opportunity for love and reconciliation. Hello, Norman. Oh, look at you. (laughs) Look at this little fat girl, Ethel. Oh, Norman, you're as thin as a rail, isn't she? Catherine Hepburn and my father played my parents and I was extremely intimidated. The parallels were very, very close between the characters and, and my father and I in real life. But we never spoke of it. We never spoke about anything like that, ever. In the movie, the main scene between Chelsea and her father was a scene that whenever I would read it, and during every single rehearsal, I would become very, very, very emotional because it was so very close to home. I want to talk to you. I, um. I think that, um. Maybe you and I should have the kind of relationship that we're supposed to have. What kind of relationship is that? Well, you know, like a. Like a father and a daughter. Yeah, just in the nick of time, huh? Worried about the will, are you? Well, I'm leaving everything to you except what I'm taking with me. Just stop it. I don't want anything. It just, it seems that you and me have been mad at each other for so long. I didn't know we were mad, thought we just didn't like each other. Knowing that my father doesn't like to have anything that's not rehearsed, everything has to be rehearsed down to the nth degree, I decide to save one thing that I'm going to do when I think it's his last close-up because I want him to do something unplanned. I don't know what it, how he would react, but it will be emotional. I, I want to be your friend. I reached out and I touched his arm. This man, you come around more often? You mean a lot to your mother. And he put his hand up. But I saw... The tears in his eyes. And, you know, it just meant the world to me.
0: It's really a pretty tragic and heartbreaking story, the life of Jane Fonda. And it's as if this successful, beautiful woman, all her life was trying to gain the approval of her father. And finally now is a famous and wealthy, acknowledged actress. She does something unthinkable. She buys a film and then decides to produce it, which tells the story of a family that mirrors her own family. And then she casts her father and herself in it, in the leading roles, all in this desperate hope that it might lead to some kind of breakthrough with her father and her but the problem is that through the entire taping of, the, of this film, they can never talk openly about the struggle of their relationship. And so in this final emotional moment, she decides to grab his arm unscripted. And you, I don't know if you caught it in that moment on that film, but you could see Henry Fonda cover his face as he began to cry and he turned away because he wasn't expecting it. And that tear from her father ended up meaning everything to her because what it told her is, my father cares enough about me to demonstrate a little emotion toward me. And I think, sadly, this tragic story is repeated all too often in our broken world. Each of us desperately searching for love And yet always that love just seems outside of our grasp. Because I think the truth is, so often in our broken relationships, our pride gets in the way. And we cannot humble ourselves enough to make the first move toward reconciliation and healing the relationship. It seems too risky to become vulnerable and show our true emotions to one another. And so instead, we just keep drifting apart from each other. But what is so wonderful about the Christmas message is this, is that God's love is nothing like our love because God's love is perfect love that he shows toward us. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3 says this, The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. What God is saying is that my love can always be counted on. It never fails. It is 100% consistent toward you. 1 John chapter 4 verses 8 to 10 and 18 to 19 give further elaboration on this love of God when it says whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. In other words, what John is saying here is basically this. God's perfect, unfailing love perfects our own love so that we are no longer driven by our fears. In other words, what he is saying here is this, is all of the damage, all of the scars, all of the wounds that we bear from the attempts at love in an imperfect world can only be healed when we experience the perfect love of God extended to us. John says God is love, and so everything he does is out of that love, everything. In the first message, we looked at why the cross was needed, why Jesus must experience the wrath of God, and we said it's because he is perfect in his holiness, that he cannot compromise his justice. Well, in the same way, I would say this, is that everything that God does is also flowing out of his love because God cannot compromise the fact that he is love. Everything he does is always an expression of his love for us. God always is for us. He is unfailing in his commitment to us. Everything is for our good. And I'm going to say this, that perfect love that can only come from God is the only solution to heal a broken heart, to give hope and joy in a world where there is so much pain because it is the only love that you can count on 100% of the time. And what the Bible tells us is that in that perfect love, he didn't wait on us. It's like that struggle with Jane and Henry Fonda, right? Nobody knows how to make that first vulnerable move to one another, and they are desperately longing to love each other, but neither of them can really seem to find the courage to do so. And so they have to act it out in a movie. But that is not the love of our God. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, what the gospel says is that God did not wait for us to make the first move, He took the initiative. In one of the most well-known passages on love, we find these words in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, I want to say this. When we read these words, most of us read them as though they were commands given by God to Christians. But can I challenge you that none of this is in command form, is it? Do you see a single command in these words? These are descriptive words about what love is. And I want to say this. Rather than reading these as commands, I want you to consider, do you believe that this is the God that you worship? Do you actually truly believe that God is always protecting, always trusting, always hoping, always persevering in his commitment toward us? Because that's what the Bible says. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a series of three parables to try to help us understand the depth of God's love. And in the first parable, a sheep wanders into the open country and is lost, and the shepherd must leave the entire flock to chase after and rescue the one lost sheep. In the second parable, a woman has lost one of ten silver coins, and she turns the house upside down until she finds it. And in the third and most dramatic of the parables, a son wishes his father dead by basically demanding his share of the inheritance even before he has passed away. And then he squanders all of that money on wild living and ends up starving to death practically, living among the pigs that he must feed for a living. And despite everything that the son has done, the father never stops scanning the horizon, hoping for a sign of his son, who he hopes will finally come home. And what's interesting is this, the passionate and costly search captured in each of these parables is striking, I'll grant you that, but that is not what makes these stories so remarkable. What makes these three stories so unusual, and in fact what I would argue is the real point that Jesus is drawing our attention to is how each of them ends. The shepherd calls his friends and neighbors together and throws a big party to celebrate for the lost sheep that was found. The woman similarly invites all of her friends and neighbors to a huge celebration to celebrate the coin that was found. And I'm going to tell you this, it's in the Bible, but it's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. It's confusing, it's disorienting, it's nonsensical imagine if I were to invite a bunch of you to a steak and lobster dinner and I didn't tell you the occasion but after we had all feasted and had a great time I stood up to make a speech and I said the reason why I have gathered you as my loved ones here this day for this amazing meal is because I had thought I lost his quarter (laughs) and after hours of searching I found it (laughs) and now we are partying because of it you would think I was crazy The third story, though, is the most disorienting. The son has done everything imaginable to destroy his relationship with his father. And on the way out of the house, he burns every bridge behind him. There is no way back home from the things that he has done to his father. In so many ways, he has spat on his father's face, rejecting him personally and disgracing and embarrassing him publicly. And when he comes home, he probably still stunk of the pigs that he had defiled himself with. And yet the amazing thing is this, that after all of that, the father embraces him and kisses him and throws a party in his honor. And I'm going to say this, these celebrations don't make sense to us. The ridiculous levels of joy captured in them seems so out of proportion to the value of what was lost. And I think that is Jesus' whole point. What Jesus seems to be saying is the confusion that you feel over the celebration helps you to grasp how little you truly understand of the love of God for you. Because that's how God celebrates every time a sinner repents and finds his or her way back home. Amen? That is the joy of the Christmas message. That is why we celebrate. It is the message that God's love for us is greater than we could have ever hoped for or imagined. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 13 to 16 says this, Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And then this is what God says. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. I don't think I really truly understood what God was saying until we began to have kids. And I watched the unbelievable insanity of my wife when she was in this nursing stage. I had never seen her at that level of devotion, just every two, three hours around the clock waking up to feed this child. And by the fourth, fifth kid, because we have five of them, she got tired, I'll admit it. And we, she used to be so disciplined about putting the kids down back in their crib and then coming back to bed. But by child number four, I think she was getting older and she was getting tired. So what she would do is, after she breastfed the child, as she was drifting off to sleep herself, she would put the child between her and me. But she was constantly paranoid that I would roll over and crush the child in my sleep. <laughs> And so this is the pattern that developed, is that the moment I shifted even a little, she smacked me really hard to make sure that I didn't roll into the child. And it's insane because I'm asleep, and she is asleep, but she is still, and these are not subtle taps. These are full-fledged, and it lands wherever it lands. Sometimes it lands on my face, on my chest, on my neck. I went to this trip with this pastor friend of mine, and we ended up having to sleep together in the same bed because there weren't enough beds. And the next morning, he was very confused. And he said, dude, what is the deal with you? And he said, I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you were kind of rolling into my side, so I just tapped you and said, hey, Steve, can you move her? And you he went, Ugh! <laughs> like this. <laughs> and then you immediately shrank into the very corner of your bed. And I said, uh, and then he said, is something wrong? <laughs> and I said, Nah, that's just my wife's training, you know? I've been hit so many times in my sleep that I am now conditioned in my sleep to cower like a fearful animal in the corner of the bed. And what God says is this. That is the power of maternal instinct, okay? But this is what God says, but in a broken world, truthfully, even maternal instinct can fail sometimes. We know that that's true, right? Right? Even a mother can abandon a child. But what God says is this, my love is greater than that. I will never, ever, ever abandon you. I'll just close with this. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says this, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, he will exalt over you with loud singing. Amen? Do you know that this is the God that you worship? Do you know that the God of heaven and earth sings over you and loves you and exalts over you? Let's pray. My hope is that this Christmas would not just be about vague, warm, and fuzzy feelings, about dinners with family and friends and of caroling and nice meals. But what I pray is that underneath it all would be a heart ignited by love when you truly understand how much God loves you. And I want to say this. If you feel that your heart has ever been broken by love, I want to tell you that God can give you a love that will never fail, that will never let you down. All you need to do is receive it by faith in your heart and believe in Jesus Christ. Would you just pray for a couple minutes and our worship team is going to close us out on some time of celebration in this love as we close out our worship in the